0: Vector search and semantic search are today's topics on developer voices. How do you take a large language model, which is all the rage at the moment, and teach it about your data set? What does it even mean to take a large language model and get it to search through the meaning of your code base or your documentation or your product catalogue or whatever data you're dealing with? How do you teach a computer to understand it? It seems really hard because large language models seem to come pre-baked from the factory as these trained, fixed things. How do you teach it new stuff? This is one episode where we get to go delightfully deep on how this all actually works. What's a large language model really doing? What does it need an auxiliary database for? And if it does, what's the flow of data back and forth between them? What is that auxiliary database actually doing? What's it doing in the pipeline, but also how is it doing it? What are the data structures? How does it organize data in memory on disk? What does it mean to search through meanings? How much work is it? How do you make it fast? How do you make it cheap enough to be used by your users? I'm interested in all of this stuff, and I really wanted to find someone who could take me right into the guts of what's going on here. And I think I lucked out with today's guest, Zan Hassan. He has both the depth of knowledge to go right down into the internals and the clarity of explanation to really bring it to life and make it makes sense to me now. It really does. And I want to share that with you. We go all the way from clues about how you can improve your prompt engineering through index design and computational complexity and optimization to where Zan thinks the future of semantic search is headed. I can promise you just from the first five minutes of this interview, you'll have a much better understanding of how this is all put together. So let's get going. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices. And today's voice is Zan Hassan. databases is the topic today, and we've got Zan Hassan as our expert to talk about it. How are you doing, Zan? Hey, everybody. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. Good. You've just got back from filming a course for LinkedIn, so you're now a Hollywood star, right? Yeah, exactly. Makeup and everything. In fact, I did my makeup before this, so. (laughs) You're looking fabulous. So we should probably jump out of the unfamiliar world of Hollywood and straight into the tech as fast as we possibly can. Uh, we want to talk, I wanted you to tell me about vector databases in as much depth as I can extract from you. But we should probably start on the common understanding of the state of ML, right? I think everybody everybody has ChatGPT as a reference point, right? Even if they haven't looked into this much. Mm-hmm. And I have this impression of ChatGPT as a pre-baked neural net and you can ask questions of it, and it can answer because neural nets are magic. But it's pre-baked, so I can't add any data to it. I have a vague sense that that's where needing a database comes in. Yeah. Take me to a proper understanding.
1: Yeah, so if we um, zoom out a bit and we think about what ChatGPT is, uh, ChatGPT is a chatbot that's built on top of a, a base model, and the base model itself is just a sentence completion tool. It's a you can almost think of it as a fill-in-the-blanks tool. So it's studied essentially pretty much all of the data on the internet to learn about the co-occurrence of words and which words are more likely to be used with other words. So if you say uh, something like I don't know the um, the monkey ate the dash banana would be a higher probability, higher probability completion compared to i don't know cabbage or something like that or car that would be right. a very low probability completion and so on top of that you can um, you can build chatbots so you can actually force a base model to act like a chatbot if you just prime it correctly so you can say speaker 1 said xyz chatbot answered speaker 1 uh, question XYZ chatbot answered and then you the question that you wanted to actually answer you say speaker one asks the question what's the color of the sky and then chatbot and you leave it empty and then it'll autocomplete based on the high the highest probability tokens that it's been trained on um, the chat GPT is just a finer and refined version of this where we control the quality of its generation by uh, fine-tuning it on uh, higher quality data points that have been extracted by contractors. So you give contractors a question and then they generate high quality answers and you train uh, train the base model to output those uh, higher quality answers. Um, so all of this to say, even if you take ChatGPT and all of its fine-tuned versions, the issue is that it doesn't know what it doesn't know. Right? It only knows what it's been trained on. So it knows the probability of words or it knows the concepts that it's been trained on. Where a database comes into this is if you want to provide external knowledge to the system, um, whether that's because the data wasn't available at training time, so it's future data that's uh, that's occurred after the 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 training process, or more realistically, it could be data that's private, right? So if if I'm a company, I have proprietary data. and I want to use the reasoning power or the generative power of a large language model on this data, I'm not going to send this data over to a third party company that's going to train the large language model. Um, That's my private data. But I still want to be able to reason over this data. Um, And that's where the database comes in. You can run the database locally. That database can have your private data. And then you attach that database to the large language model as almost like a, A secondary uh, bank of information, or it represents state for the large language model, really. And it can then retrieve information in real time before it generates. So it uh, it gives it the ability to read context, ground its answer in that context, and then generate uh, as a result of that. So that's the high level picture. A lot of people call this uh, retrieval augmented generation because you're retrieving context, and then you're augmenting the generation with that retrieved context. Um, And you can use any database for this. A vector database naturally fits in because, as we'll talk about later, you can uh, query a vector database using natural language. You You can talk to a vector database, basically. And so it's easier to get a large language model to query the database and then retrieve context from it. So that's the larger picture of how the database fits in. It's essentially just a knowledge store.
0: Okay. Take me one level deeper on that. When I type in my query, what's the flow of data through the large language model and through the vector database? And how is it recombined to do something? Yeah.
1: So retrieval augmented generation, uh, you can you can implement it in, uh, in multiple ways and there's different complexities of it. But the simplest way that you can implement retrieval augmented generation is... Think of going to ChatGPT and asking a question. You can take that question and you can turn it into a query for the vector database. So let's say your uh, question is, um, "What type of condiments go well with a hamburger?" Right. Right. So you can take that question and rather than send it off to the large language model immediately, you turn it into a query for a, for a vector database. That query is uh, can itself be the question. You send it to the vector database. And now you ask the vector database, retrieve for me the five most relevant documents that I have in my knowledge store that are to do with this question. So in this question, I've got condiments, I've got a burger, I've got ham. So it's going to retrieve for me things that are related to those concepts. And then those five things that come back can then be stuffed into my prompt and we can say, The question here is useful information that uh, you might find relevant, and that's what you send off to the large language model to generate with.
0: Okay, so I could literally do this manually, open one window with ChatGPT. I go and query for five web documents related to my search term, and then I mash all of those into it and prompt, now answer my question.
1: Yeah, exactly. In fact, before retrieval augmented generation was popular, um, I was at a meetup uh, here and um, this was back in March of 2023. So uh, ChatGPT was taking off and people were hearing about it. Um, and back then, uh, a lot what a lot of people were doing was they would search over their PDF and they would say, OK, this chunk of text is what's relevant to this question. Type out the question and then copy paste the huge uh, chunk of text, dump it into the uh, into your um, chatbot, and then say answer the question. Here's relevant information you might need to know. Um, <laughs> that that's basically what's happening. But the problem there is scalability. What if you have a billion documents or hundreds of millions of documents, and then right um, you can't really do that. But that's where the vector database comes in, really.
0: I see. Okay. That, that that's. Uh, I feel like you're, you've you just given away a magician's secret. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then um, I get how that works then. We'll keep um, DLLM as our magic box of neural networks. Let's take a look at the vector database side. When I type in which condiments go well with a hamburger, what exactly is happening to that sentence? Yeah, so
1: This is a a little bit of a look behind the scenes of why it's called a vector database. So anytime you query a vector database, a vector database understands vectors. So it understands groups of numbers. Now, whether there are three groups of numbers or a thousand groups of numbers, um, that's determined by uh, an underlying machine learning model. But the whole idea here is that if I type in what condiments go well with a hamburger, that is a human understandable version. Uh, of a sentence, right? So I can, I can ask people that and I can get coherent responses back. But if I ask that to a computer, it has no idea uh, what these words mean. The only way that it can, um, that it understands meaning is if I capture this question or this sentence in numbers and so, or or groups of numbers. So we want to, uh, we want to kind of give every, Word or every token here, an ID. And then we want to analyze, you know, which words here from my training set commonly occur with other words. um, And I need to be able to transfer the concepts in this human understandable version of a question to a computer or machine understandable version of a question. So essentially, I need to go from this sentence to now a vector representation of that sentence.
0: And there's so. Is my yeah. intuition right here that you're going to end up with a vector that, like, very broadly, it's a, a vector of floating-point numbers, and the first one is the probability that we're talking about cats, and the second is the probability that we're talking about fast food, and the third is the probability that we're talking about Germany. Uh, so
1: the first part, is I think, like is that? correct, but the second part is not... So the when you capture... When you capture the uh, sentence as vectors, it's not clear what the uh, individual dimensions are. It could be that the first one is we're talking about cats. What's the probability we're talking about cats? But we don't really know what the latent space is represented. We, we don't know what each dimension actually means. Um, it, so this is the whole point of optimizing a neural network. You initialize these weights randomly, and then you say, I want you to correctly predict the next word and optimize all of these millions or billions of weights appropriately so that I can predict the next word uh, better. And you get better and better as you optimize them. So we're not really sure whether the first dimension is, are we talking about cats? Second dimension, are we talking about Germany? Uh, It's whatever optimized the answer. It's whatever got us the lowest uh, loss.
0: Right. So the vectors are still sort of a black box, but I would expect two paragraphs that talk about burgers to have some similar subsets of vectors. Is it something like that? Exactly. So you would
1: expect, I almost think of vectors as a barcode, right? So you can think of, let's say you have a a hundred dimensional vector. There's just a hundred floating points in in a NumPy array, let's say. And the higher the vector... Let's say it's uh, more black, and if uh, the lower the vector, let's say it's white. So now you can almost think of a hundred-dimensional barcode where you have a color. It's a strip for every number, and the the higher the vector, the um, the the darker the color. Whereas uh, the lower the vector, uh, you get a um, a white color. So now you have essentially have a barcode. So the barcode for a sentence that's talking about a burger is going to be is going to light up in different places whereas a barcode for a sentence that's talking about a cat is going to light up in different places and you can actually calculate these barcodes and say okay this is a sentence about a cat this is a sentence about a dog and this is a sentence about a burger the cat and the dog (laughs) barcode would be a lot similar than the uh the burger and the the cat dog uh, barcode
0: right yeah and if you've got a barcode with all three of those lit up you're in a really dodgy restaurant
1: Exactly. So that, that's, <laughs> that's the whole idea behind vector search. You're comparing these barcodes, and you're saying, well, how close is this barcode to this other barcode? Okay. And the idea behind the barcode is that it's just some uh, semantic, uh, it, it's a capture of the semantics behind the human understandable version of the data.
0: OK. So I still need some kind of model that's going to turn my data, whether it's text or a PDF or an image, into a vector.
1: Exactly. That that's the key point here. Um, the the reason why they're called AI-native or machine learning databases or AI-first databases. There's a lot of buzzwords, but the reason why vector databases are affiliated with machine learning and kind of interwoven with machine learning is because they search over these vectors that are spit out and generated by ML models, and most of the times they're neural networks. So that's why. Um, semantic search is also known as neural search sometimes.
0: Right. Okay. So, I okay, I understand up to that point. So then we what we're really talking about underneath all this. Once you finish neural networking things, is a database that's good at storing vectors of floats, and then searching for similarity between vectors of floats. Yeah. How yeah. does that work?
1: So on a high level, uh, intuitively understanding it, it's uh, it's what we talked about. If you if I give you a barcode for a question, your job is to say which barcode. Let, let's say every single object you have, let's say every file you have on your computer, can be captured into a barcode. Right? So that includes uh, text documents, but interestingly also images. Audio files, video files, uh, and we can we can take that and we can talk about multimodality later. But let's just say we only have text documents for now, and we have the ability to turn every uh, text document into a vector or a barcode. Vector search or semantic search or neural search is effectively saying, if I have this question and I have the barcode for this question, what are the five most similar barcodes or vectors to this question vector or question barcode? Um, Intuitively, that's what's happening. One level deeper, what's happening is you can, uh, because you have uh, quantified everything as a vector, you can actually take the distance between these vectors using multiple different metrics. The easiest one, let's say, is Euclidean distance, where you can actually measure the shortest distance between this vector and this vector. if you had three-dimensional vectors or two-dimensional vectors, you could actually plot them out on a grid, and you could measure the shortest, the direct uh, line from one vector to the other vector.
0: Okay, on a grid I remember system. enough Pythagoras to calculate the distance between x, y points, and exactly. I guess you just
1: scale that up, right? Exactly. So, okay. uh, for for multidimensional vectors, you can just take every dimension, subtract the other corresponding dimension, and then you, you can you can put it into to the um, the Euclidean distance formula, and you get a measure of how different two two vectors are. And that's just one distance metric. There's lots of other distance metrics that we can choose from, but that's the main idea. So now we can take this concept of a barcode and we can quantify how different one barcode or one vector is from another vector. And essentially what you're doing is quantifying how different the question vector is from every other vector that you have Mm -hmm. in your database. And then you're saying, now that I have a distance between this question and every other vector, I'm gonna organize them from smallest distance to highest distance, and I'm gonna cut off at the top K, let's say the top five, and these five objects are the ones that are the closest or the most semantically similar to what my user is interested in, and then
0: you return those. Okay, so I can almost literally give you the ballpark. Exactly. Like I I put your 10,000 documents into a imaginary space and I can say which other documents are near this one in space. Exactly, exactly. Uh and actually, your query is the kind of the 10,001st document, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So the query goes through the exact same pipeline because the query needs to be translated using the exact same machine learning model into vector space. Um, and that vector space has to be the same vector space. Um, otherwise, it's like all of your documents are stored in German, and then you're a- asking a question in English. And if the system doesn't understand both languages, it, you won't be able to extract relevant vectors. So. The, the vector language or the embedding space that we're talking about has to be generated
0: by the same model. Okay, so I'm going to push you a bit deeper on that. So I can, I can imagine if I actually want to use this in anger, maybe at work, I guess we're talking between 10,000 and 100,000 documents, that kind of order of magnitude as soon as we get anything really interesting. Mm-hmm. I know enough from game programming that calculating collision detection on 100,000 objects is horribly slow. Yeah. So how are you going to make this efficient calculating the distance between all these documents?
1: Yeah, so that's the that's the question that gets to the bread and butter of every vector database. If you if you think about vector search as I have some question vector and I have 10,000 object vectors or uh, data points that are um, that I'm interested in and I want to retrieve the five most similar data points you can't actually perform this k nearest neighbors uh, this brute force k nearest neighbors algorithm because well at, t- at a scale of 10,000 objects you probably could at 100,000 objects now you're slowing down at a million objects you're slowing down even further and the reason why is because let's say you have uh, a, a question vector and you're in order to find out which five objects it is closest to, you have to calculate the distance between this question vector and all 10,000 objects. And then you have to sort them from lowest distance to highest distance. Yeah. So that is, uh, that is a, um, a complexity, a runtime complexity of N where N is the number of objects that you've stored in here. Yeah. Um, so that's big O of N, let's say. So as that N goes from 10,000 to hundred thousand, you get a, uh, a a, um, a 10x slow as that goes from a 100,000 to a million, that you get another 10x slow. Um, the other problem here is that not only that, but because the Euclidean distance calculation is also a function of how many dimensions the vector are the vectors are. Uh, right. Yeah. You, you also have that component in the in the runtime. So if you have a vector of 10 dimensions, then you have a runtime of 10 times the number of objects. If now your vector is more interesting if it's capturing a lot more, a um, lot more features. It's if it's capturing more concepts. Now it might be a thousand dimensional. So now your runtime scales up by the dimensionality of each vector times the number of total vectors. So it's uh, it's uh, d of n m
0: n, MN, right?
1: Yes, exactly. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, so you you get this kind of explosion where the more interesting data types you want to search over you'll need bigger vectors. And the more of that type of data you have, you'll have more vectors in in total. So now you're really slowing down. So what you need to do instead of brute force- Just to make that concrete
0: before you go into how to optimize that, what sort of numbers are we typically talking about? What's an ordinary number of documents and an ordinary number of um, vector components?
1: Yeah, so if you look at um, the dimensionality of vectors, commonly we get anything from 1,000 dimensional to 2,000 dimensional. Um, Some of them are about 700 uh, dimensional. But in that 1,000 dimensional ballpark, I would say is average. Okay. On the higher end, uh, there's also uh, models that generate 4,000 dimensional vectors. Right? And a little note on this, I guess. Uh, as we have models that are multimodal and that can capture all sorts of concepts, I imagine we'll have larger and larger dimensionalities growing as a model needs to understand different concepts not just text documents but also videos or images the dimensionality yeah. will only grow so we're starting off with a thousand two thousand but ten thousand is not uh, not out of the question okay. in the near future
0: ten thousand so that order of magnitude multiplied by what kind of document The number of objects so the, the number
1: of objects usually um if we're talking about social media uh, applications if you're thinking about like um facebook twitter instagram You can have objects in the trillions easily. (laughs) If you scale it down a little bit, let's say you're talking about recommender systems. Um, Netflix, for example, has hundreds of millions of users. It has a a catalog of, let's say, 20,000 unique um, TV shows, movies all around the world. So if you take that, you can easily get up to the billions or tens of billions of documents. realistically a lot of people are using this so right now a lot of people are trying proof of concept there's very few companies that are um, at scale moving into using vector databases but we've tested uh weviate with a, a billion documents officially and then there's users that have tested it with even more so i would say even three to three to four billion um and that's That's the uh, kind of the the upper end that we're talking about. And of course, that's changing day by day. But if I had to give you a ballpark, I would probably say 100 million to a billion. If you're on the lower end, probably uh, 10, 20 million documents.
0: Okay, that's that's got me firmly convinced. Thousands (laughs) multiplied by billions, that's firmly into the place where we need to optimize. Yeah. So you can give me an idea. I've got... Uh my, my fictional service has been very successful and I've got 100 million users now. And I would like to say, who are users who buy stuff similar to Xan? Because mm-hmm. I want to recommend stuff to Zan, Yeah, right? Um, how are you going to make that work fast? Yeah.
1: So the trick here is not to do brute force k-nearest neighbor search. Uh, it's impossible to scale up when you have a runtime complexity of D dimensionality multiplied by N, where D is a thousand and N is a hundred million. There's yeah. no way you can scale that up uh, in real time. So you, you, you imagine having an app, somebody clicks a product and then you trying to retrieve the 10 nearest uh, objects to that, the person would be sitting there for days. Um, yeah. So the idea is to do approximate nearest neighbors. And this is what all vector databases uh, really um, uh, use. And so the idea is that instead of at a high level, you want to give up uh, accuracy for performance. So you're going to say, maybe I won't be able to retrieve the best k nearest neighbors. Sometimes I'll miss a few of the right neighbors, but I will be able to you know, giving up a small amount of accuracy or a small amount of this recall of the right neighbors. So let's say you give up five percent of that recall. So you give up ten percent of that recall. So ten percent of the times you might not get the correct nearest vectors. You might get an incorrect uh, nearest vector. But for that five to ten percent recall, and of course that's um, you can fine tune that. You can you can say, well, I I want a ninety nine percent recall, and I'm willing to uh, uh, give up performance for that. But usually the trade-off is, uh, is not direct. So you give up, let's say, 1% recall, but you gain a lot of uh, performance. So then you can run in real time. You can run thousands of queries per second. Um, and that's what Approximate Nearest Neighbors does, right? It gives you the ability to trade performance, increase performance, decreasing recall, or uh, decreasing accuracy. Um, there's multiple algorithms that allow you to do this. Right, um, but one is probably the most popular one that uh, supports all of the other functionality that databases also
0: need. Right. Are we saying, like, just on the accuracy point? Is it like if you dropped me into a crowd and said, "Who are your ten nearest neighbors?" Yeah. I probably personally wouldn't get exactly tape measure out the ten nearest, but I'd still get roughly the right. I mean, they wouldn't be wildly far away.
1: Yeah. So essentially, what you're what you're saying there is. If you, if you look in, uh, in a vector space, if you think about it in vector space and you draw a bubble around your query vector and you're saying, I want to draw a bubble that's large enough to encapsulate five nearest neighbors, in brute force search, you'll always get the nearest neighbors because you've kind of, from beginning to end, calculated all the distances and sorted them. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here, you don't have the luxury of calculating all the distances. So you need to say, I better be smart about which distances I calculate and then of the distances that I've calculated, I want to sort them out from lowest to highest. And because I haven't calculated all the distances out, because that would take too long, I might have missed some distances of nearest neighbors. And so now I'm just overlooking that nearest neighbor. Um, and I'm picking one that I think is the nearest. So yes, they'll be close together. Yes, they'll still be close, but they won't be the closest. Yeah, that's the That's the idea.
0: But I'm not going to suddenly end up with someone completely the other side of the room for
1: instance no 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 so you're still it, it's it's highly unlikely that you would because you're still calculating distances you're still organizing them uh, to a degree and we'll talk about how the uh, approximate nearest neighbors hnsw algorithm works uh, 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 in a second but the main idea is that you get let's say you have the nearest neighbor but you fail to calculate that distance now for all intents and purposes this is this neighbor is invisible So now you're going to say, what is the nearest neighbor that I calculated? So it's not going to be like you'll get all sorts of wonky distances. You're still going through the same, uh, sorting them based on um, distances in ascending order and pick the top five. But this top five might not have the correct five, just the
0: five that you calculated the distances for. Right, so I might get five out of the top 10, for instance. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay, that convinces me to give up a little accuracy for a lot of performance. Yeah, so, how and so, does it work? That,
1: that, so the performance that we're talking about here, you go from uh, runtime complexity of uh, O of dimensionality times N to now runtime complexity of logarithm of N. And that that's a very, very uh, scalable um, kind of uh, algorithm. And how this works is essentially, intuitively, when you're searching... Uh, when you're searching for uh, vectors that are close to your query vector what you want to do is structure your search such that you make big jumps earlier on right so let's say you have your uh, your you have your database of vectors you come into a random object and you say how close is this object to my query okay. what you want to do is initially when you come in you don't want to have all of your vectors being searched over because that would kind of fall back down to brute force search, you want to structure it nicely. So one way that was proposed to do this is uh, called the hierarchical navigable search, uh, hierarchical navigable small worlds model. And what this does is it takes your vectors and it makes a graph out of them. And it makes a hierarchy of them. And what, what it does is when you enter the search, you enter at a top level. And at the top level, there's only large distances that are available. So you take vectors that are very far from each other. So now you're almost like uh, taking a highway from one vector to the other vector, and these vectors are quite far away. So you're saying, of these vectors that are really far away, which one is closest to my query vector? So you're almost saying, I want to quickly localize which region or what type of thing my query vector is asking about. So rather than search for every other vector, I'm just going to say, out of these 500 vectors, and I might have, let's say, 10 million vectors, these uh, 500 vectors are farther apart. They allow me to explore vector space efficiently. I want to find out which vector is closest to my query vector. And these are bigger jumps in vector space.
0: Right. I I have a mental image that this is a bit like if you're looking for a house in a country, let's say in England, houses aren't uniformly distributed across England. They're clustered yeah. together in cities. Mm-hmm. So I start by indexing which is the nearest city. Exactly. So you yeah. would,
1: instead of instead of saying, well, if you're interested in this house, let me show you the next house, the next house, the next house, the next house. Instead of searching locally uh, exhaustively, you search in different neighborhoods and you say, okay, this is one house in this neighborhood. Are you interested in this? This is another house. This is another house. So you find the global region that you're interested in and then you dig down deeper within that global region. So you do more of right. you you do a coarse search and then a more fine grained search within that neighborhood exactly. So the higher okay. the highest hierarchy here is going to perhaps show you one house using your analogy from every neighborhood.
0: One of my university, university lecturers would be proud that I can now see how this starts to become log N because exactly. <laughs> you're, you're building a hierarchy that gets gradually more and more yeah. detailed. Is it multi-layered? Yes.
1: So there's, you start off at the, uh, the highest level and then you go down levels and you can have 15 levels, five levels, however much, um, that you want, but the highest level has, uh, an exponentially low number of data points so you can almost think of starting off at the bottom level and that level has all of your data points every vector let's say you have a 100 million vectors all of the vectors exist at the bottom level and then as you go up one level these data points start to drop down so by the time you reach the highest level you only have a exponentially decaying number of data points so they've only survived with a certain probability up here. So you have a very few number of data points to search over. And then as you drill down, you get more and more vectors.
0: Yeah. It's the exponential decay on the way up that gives you a exactly. logarithmic search on the way down. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Is, does that mean this is expensive to create the index? Are you then having to, um, are you doing that search to pre-calculate all the clusters or is it smarter than that?
1: No. So, uh, it is, It is a lot more uh, intensive to create the index than it is to search the index. Because searching the index is just logarithm of n. Because you come in with a query vector, and then you pick a random vector at your highest level, and you make these big jumps on which neighborhood are you interested in. And then depending on this neighborhood, let me show you more locality, more locality. You keep on adding vectors, and then you keep performing searches all the way down to the lowest level, where now you've got your nearest neighbors and you return that. But building this index up is a lot more difficult. And so usually if you're building an index, it'll take um, anywhere from uh, hours, whereas searching, uh, is, uh, you can perform thousands of searches per second.
0: Okay. Is it... um, Just to try and get a sense of this. So if I've got a large index pre-calculated and I want to add something in, Mm-hmm. How expensive is that if I add one new document?
1: So, adding is uh, relatively quick. So, this is one of the um, the plus points of the HNSW algorithm. And this is one of the reasons why um, WeV8 uh, uses the HNSW algorithm. It's one of the few um, approximate nearest neighbors algorithms that not only is quick, is a log of n, but it also supports insertion and deletion because every database needs CRUD operations. Um, you need to be able to add data points and not have to reconstruct the entire index because then every uh, update or every insertion would be hours long.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: So you can simply add a data point and that data point gets added at the bottom level because every data point exists at the bottom level. And then again, you have that exponentially decaying probability of whether or not that data point survives at the next level, at the next right. level, at the next level. So at some point, that, that vector object is going to die off and it's only going to reach up to a certain level into your into your hierarchy, into your uh, index. So that's right. all insertion takes. Yeah.
0: That's, that's one other small detail which I'm going to ask you about. Are you saying, as there's less and less probability of it surviving, are you saying at the top level where we've maybe got, let's say, a dozen surviving points, they are actual documents? They're not like average centroids?
1: No, no, they're actual
0: documents. Okay, okay. Yeah.
1: There okay. is, um, so we can we can talk about this, but there are algorithms that allow you to approximate vectors using centroids, so using product quantization or using like k-means clustering. But just HNSW by itself doesn't um, average the vectors out. It uses the actual vectors to, to search over.
0: Yeah. Okay. I wonder if that means you could, like, if your index got sufficiently large, you could shortcut. You wouldn't have to go all the way down to the search. But I guess you're saying it's fast enough anyway.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Because you have this log n, I don't know if you would. You could. You, you mean cut it off at a certain point w- before it reaches the bottom.
0: Uh, yeah, you get the five levels level. down. And you say, well, that's good enough for now.
1: Yeah, I, I I think you could do that, but
0: I'm not too sure. Yeah. I guess you could, but you wouldn't need to bother.
1: Yeah, because it's yeah. Uh, it's already real time. So it, yeah, yeah. even if okay. you have like hundreds of millions of documents, you're getting. Uh, you can search. Uh, uh, hundreds of queries per second right so unless you're trying to push recall uh, to a degree where now you've uh, now you're kind of falling back onto um, brute force search uh, then i think you would have to say okay uh, maybe we don't go down to the the bottom level but then again you would have the program uh, the problem that recall would be um, would be hindered as a result of that right so
0: okay okay give me an idea of the size of this index once you've built it is it um, because there's got to be huge compression from the original documents down to the vectors. But then is the index, presumably the index is larger than the vector set because it's got multiple copies at different hierarchies.
1: Yeah. So the if you just look at one vector, the index, if you have 10,000 documents, you'll have 10,000 vectors, but then the index has... um. Yeah, so this is a good question. I'm not sure if multiple vectors are actually stored, or you just say that this vector is also at this index. Just refer to it uh, here. But it also depends on how many vectors you have. Okay. And so, for example, we when we tested this with um, the sphere data set, which has around 900 million objects, when we vectorized that and we created the index for that, I, I believe we had um, thousands of gigabytes. Uh, So the index was thousand or uh, hundreds of gigabytes uh, large. I can't remember the exact numbers, but uh, we've written a blog on this that people can refer to. So the index was that large. And this is where the compression algorithms that I was talking about come into place because the vector database runs in memory. And so if your data set gets very large, it can get very expensive.
0: So that raises the question. This is all on memory, but but is there? How is this stored on disk? Because it's you're storing lots of lots and lots of lists of floating point numbers. Is this some kind of columnar thing on disk?
1: So on disk, I'm not. So everything, all of the vectors, when they're indexed and you're searching over them, this is happening in memory. Right? It's, all, so in memory. it's yeah. all in memory. It's right. all in memory. There are some uh, algorithms. Um, which proposed uh, doing read-writes from disk. Um, and this is what, in order to compress and reduce um, memory uh, usage, that's what you would have to do. So we've recently announced this um, where you can keep in memory uh, kind of compressed centroid representations of vectors. Um, and then on disk, you store the full representation. So what you do is you do this core search over K means centroid vectors, and then you say these are my hundred closest vectors that I'm interested in. Now read them all in from disk and perform the uh, the finer search over the hundred oh, okay. correct vectors. Um, yeah. So that's that's one way to uh, to balance between you know storing the whole uh, index in memory versus storing a compressed compressed version of the index in memory, using that to identify which uh, centroids I'm interested in, and then. Reading the those vectors in, and then reperforming or rescoring the, those distances, so you get back the recall.
0: Yeah, and presumably there'd be hot pages in that, so you could keep the most important things still in memory. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay, so let let's move on to another topic, which you've hinted at, which is one of the early things I remember seeing in this space was you can do cool things like you take the vector for, uh, very broadly, I'm hand-waving, you can fill in the details, but you take the vector for bridges and then you take the vector for bridges in Germany mm-hmm. and you take the vector for Germany and you subtract Germany from bridges in Germany and add in Mexico and you get yeah. documents about bridges in Mexico. Yeah. And you've been doing this with like going from images to text to sound files tell me about that
1: yeah so this is this is a field that i'm really interested in this idea of multimodality because a a lot of people are doing vector search over text documents right now but i think the future is doing this vector search over multimodal data because the idea is that there's no reason why we should limit these neural networks to just text data, and in fact, before we had this revolution in natural language processing, we had a revolution in computer vision. The original paper that was published by um, Hinton uh, in 2012 was on ImageNet, and he he used uh, you know uh, NVIDIA GPUs to train this uh, this AlexNet uh, model that got state of the art on uh, solving ImageNet. So. These models can understand not just text, not just sentences, not just documents, but also images, video, which are just, you know, evolutions of images. Uh, They can also understand audio files. They can understand all sorts of data. So why limit the vector representation to just text? Um, We're more comfortable with text, but I think now that uh, people are getting used to vector search, I think the next thing that is going to be very popular is storing images in the form of um, vectors, storing videos, storing audio files in the form of vectors. And because the vector database, all it's doing is searching over vectors, it doesn't care whether the input was an audio, image, video. A vector is a vector, and I can just as easily build an HNSW index over a vector of audio files as I can a uh, a um, you know a vector of uh, text documents. So now the idea is that now that if we have models that can represent this multimodal data as, uh, as vectors, we, we can search over them. It gets really cool when you have models that can capture not just one modality. So you might have a model that understands text and a separate model that understands audio, which mm. is interesting because they allow you to perform you know, text-to-text search, audio-to-audio search individually within modality. But what gets me really excited is when you have models that can understand multiple modalities. So a model that could potentially understand images and text, like um, clip from OpenAI, for example, where now you can search for a concept like cat and you get back images of the cat. And there, you're not really um, matching words with images uh, in terms of metadata but rather you're matching the vector of the word with the vector of the image. And those two vectors happen to have a lower uh, distance between them, and that's why they get retrieved as nearest neighbors.
0: Right. So they both get indexed into roughly the same space. So, of course, you'd be exactly. able to... And presumably, if you index lots of these different things, any any text query would land you in a place that was surrounded by documents and and images... Waveforms, video. Exactly. But you said earlier, it's it's like one model will encode things into English, another co- encodes them into German, and you can't just mix and match vectors. Yeah. So, do I need a neural net that's been trained to do all these things?
1: Yeah. So that's that's a great question. Right now, there's two kind of um, developments in this field of multimodal neural network modeling. One development. Uh, is more practical, and uh, this uh, goes in line with the ones that we've integrated so far. So if you look at Clip from OpenAI, uh, or if you look at um, uh, ImageBind from Meta that was released earlier this year, these types of multimodal models, so Clip, for example, understands images and text. And um, ImageBind understands text, images, audio, video, um and there's a couple of other modalities which are not as interesting, but these are the the four main modalities that it understands. Right. This model, uh, ImageBind, is actually six independent models. So there's one model that's a specialist at identifying images, another one that's a specialist at identifying words. Okay. And so you've got six separate models, and now the problem is what you said. Each of one of these models speaks its own vector language. So if I take the image of a cat, I'm going to get a barcode, and that barcode can be very different from the barcode of the word cat itself. Yeah, that's completely so now, incompatible <laughs> standards, right? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So now the trick is, how do I unify the vector spaces such that the barcode for a cat, the image of a cat, and the word cat, and maybe the video of a cat, and the cat meowing are all landing me in the same kind of approximate vector space. And that is the, that is the trick. And
0: was <laughs> that trick done?
1: Yeah, so what they do in the ImageBind paper is they, t- they use contrastive learning. So they say, here is one data point, this can be, and they do this across modality. So let's talk a little bit about um, within modality contrastive learning. So for example, if I take five images of dogs, and then yeah. I have five images of other classes, then what I can do is pass these through the same model, And I get vector representations for five dogs and five other classes. So now I can say in my vector space, I'd like the data point for a dog to be sufficiently close to the data points for other dogs, but far away from the negative examples, far away from the non-dog data points. So through this contrastive training, I can actually push and pull data points in vector space. So once I've generated them, then I can kind of push and pull to my to my liking based on these positive and negative examples
0: right so hang on how does that actually translate into vec? how does that translate into vectors and how does that help
1: like yeah so for example if you, let's say you have uh let's say you have a model that understands images right? yeah you're going to pass your images through and the model generates the vectors yeah. so it One way that you can train this model is just to classify. Let's say you have a model that takes in images and its job is to output a probability per class. And you train this classifier and then you take some slice, some representation of weights in between before it gets to the classification part. And that becomes your vector representation. Okay. So So now... I'm sort
0: of doing a centroid for dogs. Is that the You can... uh,
1: Yes. So the, the idea is that in order for it to, uh, if it's trained, in order for it to correctly classify uh, among the different or distinguish between the different classes, it has to be able to identify what's unique about dogs versus what, what's different from a dog than a cat versus a cake. So it has to, uh, it has to nudge the, the, the weights such that it can identify dogs from cakes, from cats. And in doing so, it identifies or it localizes different parts of your training set in different parts of vector space. And then you take that part of the vector space and you say, now these are my embeddings. This is my vector representation for what a dog is, and I'm going to use that with my vector database. And so if your model can give you this, you can then uh, go forward with this idea of contrastive learning that that I talked about.
0: Okay, so... I'm still not entirely getting how that takes me between different modalities.
1: Yeah. So that's the, that's the trick where, let's say you have a model that you've trained independently to identify um, vision, right? identify visual features It can take in images. You've got another one that understands text and another one that understands audio. Hmm. If these are all generating vectors of the same dimensionality, or you've kind of um, modified them to generate vectors of the same dimensionality, now you're getting a image representation of 500 dimensions, a word representation of 500 dimensions. Now what you want to do is, say, you take the image representation of a dog and you take its vector. So you get 500 numbers, you get that barcode. What you want to do is then train it further to say, this uh, vector representation of the image should be close to the vector representation of the word "dog" of a dog barking of the video of the oh. dog. So you pull together the vectors across modalities in this multi-dimensional vector space, and you push apart the concepts that shouldn't be close together.
0: Right, that's, that's the part I'm missing. When you get those five dogs, there are actually five different modalities of dogs. Exactly. So now yeah, you've okay. got now you've got
1: you- a concept. You you know how um, you know how uh, babies when they go. Th- when you explain a new concept to them, they're not just taking in that concept like a machine learning model would. They understand a the concept across all these modalities. So they, when you explain to them, that's a dog, they see the dog, they can hear the dog, they can kind of see the, the fur wave, so they understand the motion dynamics of what happens when the air interacts with the dog. So they, they understand all of this. They might even get smell. Yeah. So now you've got this multi-dimensional vector space where you, you can pass in a query and then you can retrieve the uh, the uh, nearest neighbors across multiple modalities. And so that's what this image-bind model is doing.
0: So you're kind of forming a gestalt of all the different vector types. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. OK. And so this is
1: one approach, and this is the practical approach. So the last module that we released with uh, with 8 was the um, image-bind, uh, multi vec image-bind, where you can take any type of multimedia that the model understands. It translates from that multimedia type to a vector, and then you can search within this vector space, um, and you can do some really cool things with this. Um, but the the other approach here that um, I haven't seen work as well, I don't know if it's um, I don't know if it's ad- as advanced as uh, this approach of training one mo- model per data type and then fusing them, unifying the vector uh, spaces, is to like you said take a model and just train it from scratch to understand all of these modalities. So there's no different model. It's just one model that understands everything.
0: And it has to learn to differentiate and then group itself. Yes, that, exactly. That seems like it would be a lot more difficult.
1: That It is a lot more difficult, but it is a lot more scalable. Because now, think about what would happen uh, earlier. Um, You would have, let's say you want to encode 25 modalities. You have 25 models that you're training, and then you have to fuse them. How do you fuse them? Well, you need to hand curate. These are positive examples. These are negative examples. Pull these closer to this representation. Push these concepts away. Um, It doesn't scale. Whereas this one, because one model understands it, you don't need to unify. Um, The the model itself in in the uh, optimization process unifies for you. Um, But it is a, a more difficult training process for sure, which is why I don't think we have practical implementations of these second types of multimodal models. There are proposals, but I haven't seen one that works as well as uh, as this image bind model from Meta.
0: So this is slightly ahead of the cutting edge. That's the future yeah, you're hoping for.
1: Exactly. But I think nice. this is the future, this type of one model that understands all of these modalities, if not all the important modalities like audio, video, image, and text. Uh, I, I think if we can get a model that understands uh, these types of modalities, I think they will function better. But for now, we have this kind of duct tape solution of six different models, unify them so that they each speak the same language, and then now you can perform a very interesting multimodal search, cross-modal search. Um, given words, you can search for
0: audio files, video files, images, super cool. Okay. That does sound very cool. um, So people watching us on YouTube, we'll be able to see there's a lovely painting behind you. And we, we have a future where I can search for medieval poetry that's closest to that painting exactly well not a future
1: i mean you can do it now so we have a we have a module with vivie and we've um we've actually created a demo of this where we seed the database with audio files with video files images um and um then we can search over it with any of these modalities so you could say today i'm feeling like this song that could be your query and you say here are some paintings that are close to that query or here's some <laughs> videos that are close to that query, and you can do that right now. This this kind of cross modal search is completely possible.
0: That seems like the most mad fun I could have since uh, Markov chains mashing together, you know, heavy metal lyrics and Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. It, yeah, it's amazing.
1: We're we're actually having multiple um, hackathons around this concept of multimodality because once you give people this machine learning model that can understand all these types of data, and the ability to scale up to millions or hundreds of millions of these data types, then really the, your imagination is the is the limiting factor, right? What can you put together? Are you going to search for audio over audio, like a Shazam type of application? Or um, you, you can do all sorts of interesting things with this.
0: OK, this sounds like fun. So to wrap up then, why don't you give me the uh, very high level overview of how I could do this at home? And I'll, I'll allow you a quick plug of Weaviate for this. Yeah.
1: So, if you wanted to, so the, uh, all my uh, demos are open source. So if you go to Weaviate tutorials, um, that repository has a bunch of these implemented. If you go to WeV8 examples, there's a bunch of uh, implementations of this as well. Starting off with basics of how do you search over text documents. Um, All the way up to how do i search over these multimodal uh, documents as well so you can look at examples there Um, also we're implementing newer and newer modules um, pretty much every month so if we see a really new cool uh, model that we think would be helpful in vectorizing data like this multimodal uh, image bind one from meta we integrate it so that if you take your data you can simply just point us towards that data Choose which module module we're going to use and which model we're going to use to vectorize it. And then we store all the vectors. And then you can come along and say, this is a new file. This is an image or an audio. We handle all of the vectorization, all of the going from data point or data object to passing it through the model, generating the vector, and then searching over it. So it's uh, in terms of how many lines of code, it's relatively simple. I think it's only 50 lines of code to creating this multimodal search engine. Um, And there's an example of this that you can uh, check out as well. Um, Outside of this, uh, if you're interested, I would join the Slack community. We've got a forum as well. If you have questions when you're playing around with this. Um, So yeah, that's, that's where I would look. Uh, Also, if uh, we're, we're, Getting feedback from the community as well, so we've recently announced the new um, Python client. So if you do try to make this multimodal search engine, I would recommend you use the new Python client. And if you have feedback to, you know, uh, tell us about it, if you uh, think that we can improve things, definitely reach out with that. Uh, and yeah, would love to. Would love to see
0: what people build. Cool. I'll get some links from you offline, and we'll stick those in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. And so, the last question I wanted to ask you, really brass tacks, um, is Weviate. It's it's one of these models where it's an open source database plus you can pay us to host it for you. Exactly. That's the, yeah. that's the very high level view. Which parts are open source, and um, what's the license? Just so I know.
1: Yeah, so it's fully open source, um, and the same uh, the same code or the same source code that paid customers get is the exact same code that you can access on uh, on GitHub uh, WeV8. And so the base model, the the, sa- uh, the base code is exactly the same. If you deploy it locally on your computer, it's exactly the same. If you deploy it into your cloud, it's exactly the same. Uh, essentially, what we um, charge for is managed um, instances of WeV8. So if you um, deploy WeV8 on WCS, WeV8 Cloud Services, then we charge for that um, or if we manage your, uh, database in your own cloud environment, then we charge for that. Um, so that's, that's what we're charging for, but the code itself is, um, is exactly the same. So if you have the capabilities to run the database, then you get the exact same functionality and performance. Uh, and also we're improving it daily. So it's not that one performs better than the other. There is only one version of WeV8, the free
0: and the paid version is exactly the same. Yeah. Cool. I like that business model. It's like you you can use exactly the same at home until it becomes a headache to manage and then we'll do it for you at a price. Yeah, that's fair. fair. Okay, well, thank you very much. I finally feel I have an understanding of how the computer science under the hood works. Awesome.
1: Yeah, so this was very interesting because as a data scientist, I understood the K-nearest neighbors and the brute force approach. And then I was wondering myself how this would scale up. And so I I did a deep dive. It's been almost a year since I joined the company, but... um, it was very interesting to get an engineering understanding of how this is implemented, which is very new to me. So all of the, the database implementations and uh, how you do the approximate nearest neighbors, that learning all of that was very fun coming from a data science background. And um, yeah, it, the technology is moving so fast that uh, not only is the machine learning component moving fast, but the engineering stuff is also moving fast. So we're pushing out uh, updates monthly around upgrading the um Performance, upgrading the features that you have within the database as well, and then the machine learning world is moving so fast that we're also integrating multiple modules so that you can represent data uh, better and better in these in these uh, vector formats as well.
0: Well, with the world moving so fast, I should probably leave you to get back to uh, keeping up. <laughs> awesome, Zan Hassan, Thank was you very fun. much for
1: joining us. It's great fun. Thank you, Chris.
0: San, thank you very much. I've been playing with those ideas for a few months now, but that's the first time I got a sense that I can trace the bytes from the keyboard through the data structures all the way out into the screen again. You know, that sense that you can see how the data is processed every step. And I love that feeling. I love getting a new architecture inside my head, feeling a certain sense of mastery over it, you know? Thank you. Hopefully, listening at home, you've had a similar sense of revelatory clarity. I certainly hope you have. If you have, I'll just simply take a moment to remind you that the like and rate and share buttons are there waiting for you in your app. And we will be back again next week with another look into the world of programming through another developer's voice. So you might want to click subscribe and notify to make sure you catch it. And until next week, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Zan Hassan. Thanks for listening.